Good morning. Let's turn to God's Word in Mark chapter 15. We'll be reading from verse 16 all the way to verse 39. This is the most pinnacle of Scripture, the central piece of Scripture. We tremble to hear it this morning. Let's go to God's Word. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some pastor, some some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Well, pleasant good morning to all of you. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles once again, this time to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 17 and 18 this morning. God and you, the fellowship of friends. Well, I'll say it again. Rejoice, Jesus is risen. Amen. We give special attention this morning to Jesus' resurrection because we want want to remember why it is so important. And so we should try to answer the question, why is his resurrection so important? Well, one of the reasons is that it proved 
that he had accomplished what he had set out to do on the cross. Part of that work we've been talking about in recent days is that he reconciled sinners to God. When he reconciled us to God, what he did is he provided unrestricted access to God for those who believe in Jesus Christ. You know, ever since man was driven out of the Garden of Eden, he has not had access to God. Jews had a sort of access to God. It was very restricted and very limited and might not even call it true access. They were kept out of the immediate presence out of God's immediate presence there in the temple. And you remember the temple that was in Jerusalem, the tabernacle and later the temple, and how Gentiles were kept back at a distance. Jewish women could go a little bit further and with their kids, and then Jewish men could go a little bit further. Priests could go a little bit further, and only the high priest once a year could go shaking and trembling into the immediate presence where God had his footstool on earth. Like the cherubim at the entrance of the garden, the veil of that temple reminded the people and the priests that they were not to enter God's holiest presence. And Gentiles didn't have any access to God at all. Jesus' death changed all of that. We've, we looked in recent weeks about the law of Moses, and what, one of the things that the law of Moses did is it restricted that access to God, and it was, that was God's plan. He wanted to teach His people then and us through them about the seriousness of coming into God's presence. But the new covenant that Jesus effected when he died on the cross has thrown open the way of access to God. Believers in Jesus Christ have no reason to fear going into God's presence, whether you do it now in prayer or one day when we stand before him. We will have no reason to fear as those high priests once did, to tremble in fear, wondering what the outcome might be. And so, during this time of year, we these days are kind of compressed together where we talk about, we celebrate what Jesus did on the cross, and we've, we've sung about that, but we also celebrate the fact that even though He was buried in the tomb, He didn't stay there. As He said... I lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. And he did. He took up his life again and he rose from the dead. And right now, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And those five wounds that he has, they declare to believers in Jesus Christ as a neon sign, the way is open. And that for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, is the reason we rejoice. That's the reason we sang so heartily 
those first songs, right? Because we know what Jesus has done. He has reconciled us to God and He has opened the way to God. Paul explained in Colossians 1.20 that God is the one who took the initiative to reconcile sinners to Himself. We could do nothing and we were not even inclined to take an initiative even if we could. God had to do it. And Jesus achieved this new state of peace between God and us. And as Paul says there in Colossians 1, that having made peace, this is what Jesus did, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And it's amazing to think that how we read a little bit earlier, Jesus was murdered by sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike. He murdered Him. He shed His blood at their hands. And yet, it was that blood that reconciled sinners to God. And so, on this Resurrection Sunday, we have the happy privilege of exploring this incredible result of Jesus' death and resurrection. Today, we will explore the truth that Jesus announced peace for all who believe. Peace which enjoys fellowship, peace, which enjoys fellowship in a bond of friendship with God. Jesus announced peace for all who believe, peace, which enjoys fellowship in a bond of friendship with God. Now, let's take just a minute to see where we're at in Paul's discussion here. So, as we kind of just zoom in on... This part of Ephesians 2, we've been looking at how in Christ, Gentile believers have been brought near to God along with believing Jews. Now, it's remarkable that believing Jews even could come into God's presence. Remember, for so long, even they were kept back from, once you became a believer in God as a Jew, you didn't get to go into the holiest of holies. You still couldn't do that. And now you can. And so, as we break that down, what we've been looking at is this. Verse 13, Jesus brought Gentile believers near to God. And so, that's even more astounding than the fact that He brings he brought the Jews to God. Verses 14 and 15, we saw how Jesus created a new people of God. This is all part of that work that He did. Verse 16, we saw last week, Jesus reconciled both groups to God. And then what we're going to look at this morning is this. Jesus announced peace and gave both, both Jew and Gentile, access to God. So, as we take verses 17 and 18 and we break those down, the first thing we encounter is this. Jesus came and accomplished peace. Jesus came and accomplished peace. Now, I'd like you to follow with me. I want to back up a little bit and get the more immediate context. And look, starting at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. And He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His death 
in his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And then to start us out for today, verse 17, and he came. We want to talk just real briefly about those few words, and he came. What is that talking about? What period is that? And it's, it's actually kind of a, a broad period. It's going to include all of this. He came to earth. He came to die in order to accomplish this reconciliation, this peace. He came back from the dead, and when he rose, he came to the disciples. So it's that whole period. He came to earth, and all of this happened to the point where he rose from the dead, and he came to the disciples with a message. What is that message? Let's look now at the second point. Jesus not only came, but Jesus preached peace to both Jew and Gentile. Verse 17 again. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. After He came, Jesus preached peace. And what does it mean to preach? This word is a word tied to our word for evangelism. And that's the noun form of it. We get evangelism. This euangelizo is to to proclaim that good news, to announce that good news, to preach that good news. It is a preaching that comes with authority. When we preach the good news, whether it's me from the pulpit or one of the other teachers in our church from the pulpit, or you sharing the gospel with someone, you're sharing a message with the authority of Christ. And that message has power to persuade. We don't have time to go into it, but the Scriptures talk about how that message has power in it. It is the power of God. And this message, as Paul zeroes in, he focuses on this message, it is the good news of peace with God. That's just another way to talk about the gospel. Peace with God. And so what we want to do at this point is ask or answer three questions. What is peace? When did Jesus preach it? And who was that peace for? Well, we're going to answer that second question first. When did Jesus preach this message? Is this the message that he was preaching in his earthly ministry? And I don't think that's exactly what... Paul is focusing on here, because Jesus did preach the gospel, but what he's talking about here is a new message that he's announcing that it is now true. This is now something that is in effect, okay? So it had to be after his crucifixion for him to be announcing that this is now in effect. So when did it happen? Jesus first preached this message of peace in the sense that it is now in effect after his resurrection and when he met with his disciples. Do you remember in John 20, he said to them, peace be with you. 
what he's doing there is he's saying, I've finished the work that I set out to do. I have now accomplished peace for those who believe in me. That's what Jesus was saying. And so he tells them that after those traumatic events that just completely turned their world upside down, their Lord, the one they thought was coming to bring his kingdom in and set it up right now, was murdered. And he says to them, peace be with you. Jesus continues to preach that message, and he did, through the apostles. One example of that is how, you remember in Acts 10, when Peter is preaching to Cornelius and those at his house, the Gentiles, and what he said to them is that I'm bringing you the same message that I and the other apostles have been preaching to the Jews. He, he, He says the same message, that same word which he sent, Jesus sent, to the sons of Israel, Preaching peace through Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I'm now preaching the same message of peace to you all, you Gentiles, that I and the others have been preaching to Jews. Now, what Paul is getting at here is that when the apostles preached peace, Jesus was preaching through them. And that's an amazing fact. Likewise, when you and I preach peace, when we preach the gospel, Jesus is preaching through us. John Stott wrote that it is truly a wonderful fact that whenever we proclaim peace, it is Christ who proclaims it through us. Isn't that wonderful? That that ought to help you in your fear of evangelism. I know we all struggle with it. And most of the time, you don't go into it all bold and everything, right? It's more the opposite. You're trying to think of how can I get out of this? Or Remember this. Yes, you are the one speaking the gospel to someone. But you're just a mouthpiece. You're just an example of what you're getting ready to tell them. Jesus is the one actually preaching through you. He's the one responsible for the outcome. He's the one that if they do get saved, either through you then or maybe you planting the seed and then later saving them, Jesus is the one who will effect the change. He's the one that will save them. That takes all the pressure off of us. All we have to do is be faithful. All we have to do is say, let me tell you this message of peace. And again, as I think I mentioned last time, that's one of the things that you can use as a way to to get into that conversation. You talk to someone and they tell you, I I, I got big problems with God. Thank you for being honest. I know you have big problems with God. I had big problems with God. We all do. And God did something about that. And let me tell you what that is. Let me tell you about the reconciliation that we can have with God. We can have peace with God. And you, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you can have completely open to you the access to God. So that's the the when. When did Jesus preach? He first preached to the apostles after his resurrection, and then he continues preaching. 
through us. Now, what about this peace? We're going to spend a little bit of time on this. This is the content of the message. This is what we are preaching. Peace. We're telling sinners that they can experience peace with God. We, we've looked at this word several times already, this word peace. And so I want to go back through briefly a few bullet points of that and then look at what we're going to learn new about it today. So we've seen that the Greek word for peace draws upon the Hebrew idea of shalom. The idea, just real sim- simplistically, is total well-being. Okay, And that, that kind of gives us the shell to hold all of this information about peace. And we're going to see that this is very full. Okay? It's not just one little word, if you will. We learned uh, a good while back that peace includes a lack of hostility. You take two formerly hostile groups, like on the one hand it was Jew and Gentile, but for all of us it is us and God. Two formerly hostile groups, and that hostility has been removed. But it isn't just that. It's not just that, okay, well, you know, we're not trying to kill each other anymore. But we still have nothing to do with each other. It is more than that because it is also a mutual acceptance of one another. And so we said that this peace is a genuine friendship expressed in a loving bond. So you could take two people who hated one another, who had this enmity, this hostility toward one another, and that that kept them apart, and if they even drew near, they would fight. And what we find now is that there is this mutual, from both sides, acceptance of one another, so that it we could call it a loving bond. Last week we learned that peace is a result of Jesus reconciling us to God. We said that this whole idea in peace and reconciliation are, are synonyms in Scripture. Okay, It's a thorough exchange of enmity for friendship. Peace describes our new relationship with God. It is then the fullness of friendship. Not the kind of friendship that you have maybe with your neighbor or a co-worker or somebody that you see, you know, at the restaurant or the, the grocery store all the time. And you say, well, yeah, I, I consider them a friend. But there's nothing real close about it, about your friendship. This is the fullness of friendship. That's what this peace is. And so now we learn a little bit more about it from verse 17. Our relationship with God is an abiding state of peace with God. It's a lasting state of peace with God. You see, we've been, we have been reconciled to God. It is done. It's not a work in progress. We are reconciled to God. It is a done deal. And because we are now at peace with Him, you see that reconciliation puts us at peace with Him, and because of that, we now enjoy sweet fellowship as friends with God. We enjoy sweet fellowship as friends with God. Now, that might bother some of you. I know some people are, are that rubs them the wrong way, this whole idea of, you know, God as my friend. This idea of the sweet 
fellowship of friends with God goes way beyond the idea that a lot of us sometimes will have. This notion that what has happened in our salvation is simply that God isn't going to throw us into hell. You see, sometimes I think that's all we think salvation is. Is that, well, okay, I'm going to heaven now and that's it. You know, okay, that's great. The problem is, is that's not it. That's not all of it. Yes, that is true. But there's so much more in that. Because God has brought us into a relationship with Himself that has been provided by the death and resurrection of Jesus so that God can call us friends. True friends. And that friendship isn't unique in Scripture. We know of people in the Scriptures that God, and even specifically Jesus, called friends. So, let's talk a little bit more about the chief elements of this piece. And we'll kind of keep filling this out. Dutch theologian Hermann Ritterboss pulls together these chief elements of peace. And, and let me walk you through this. Some of these, some short quotes from him. Number one, peace is the nature of our new relationship with God. And so, as I said, sometimes peace and reconciliation are used as synonyms. So, in, in Romans 5.1... Paul, there, he's talking about reconciliation as he develops in that passage. But in verse 1, he doesn't call it that. He calls it peace because these are interchangeable terms. And so peace is the nature of our new relationship. You know, when you talk to people about the Lord, you know they need the gospel because you can tell they don't have this kind of relationship with God. They don't, they can't say my relationship with God is peace. They can say, I have big problems with God and and they can put in all kinds of words. But it's not peace. That's not a word they use. That is a word you should use. And that, that can help them think in terms of, okay, so what is it that you have that I don't have? And that's what we want. So hostility has been replaced with peace. Number two. It is also the inner peace of the heart that pervades the whole man in all of his doings. It enables us to experience peace in everything we do. In other words, peace is all pervasive. Your entire life before God is, it has peace that pervades all through it. It touches on and, and soaks into everything. So that you can say, you know, where, where you're going with your life is this. Is, okay, you know, my, my Bible reading is pretty good. My prayer is pretty good. But, you know, obeying God in this area is not so good. Well, God's peace should be infiltrating that and getting into that and soaking into it to change it. So that every part of your life can be described as peace with God. Third, this peace, surpassing all understanding, keeps and restrains the hearts and minds of believers. And you think there are Philippians 4, 7. God's peace guards our hearts from being overwhelmed by anxiety in life's troubles. You know, there are times where your boat gets rocked a bit. And that's where God's peace comes in and settles it. Number four, this peace... As arbiter, 
gives judgment in their hearts when they find themselves in uncertainty or inner discord. So, in other words, you know how your conscience, because it is still fallen, God's in the process of redeeming it, regenerating it, and also, but it's still fallen. In other words, it's still susceptible to sin. Your conscience sometimes wrongly condemns you. Right? I mean, how often that happens. And what... What Ritterboss is trying to draw out from Scripture here is this, that when our conscience seeks to condemn us wrongly, this truth reminds us, oh no, no, I'm at peace with God. You see, so sometimes what you have to do, remember that that Puritan uh, little slogan, you know, preach to your soul, you know. Um, you need to sit your soul down and preach to it. Well, part of that soul is your conscience. And sometimes you just need to grab your conscience and sit it down and say, you need to listen while I preach. Let me open this Bible up to you. And I want you to read this verse, conscience. I want you to remember when you're trying to tell me that God doesn't want me around, that He doesn't like me, that He is just you know, angry with me and won't have anything to do with me, you need to read these verses that say that I have been put at peace with God. And that's what Ritterboss is trying to draw out. And the Scriptures are teaching us. Okay, so who is this for? Who can have this peace? This fellowship of friends with God. Just the Jews? No. First, it's, it's for the Gentiles, you who were far away. But it's also for the Jews, those who were near. Far and near, those were covenant terms. <clears throat> near meant that these are the Jews. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, the, that term near was used to describe them. Because they were in a covenant with God. So they were considered near. And Gentiles are considered those far away. Because they were not in covenant with God. The Jews were near under the old covenant. The new covenant, however, makes both of us not just near, but to be at peace with God. Because both of them needed peace. Now third... Jesus secured our joint access to His Father, verse 18. He secured joint access, our joint access to His Father. Verse 18, for through Him, Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So through Jesus' work on the cross, both Jews and Gentiles have access to God the Father. And the verb here is present tense. That means that this is a, something that we have, we possess it right now. It's not just the you know what we get later. This is ours now, and it is also something that lasts. It is an abiding state for us. What is this access? Well, because we are at peace with God, what we just learned... We can now come into His presence freely. This word for access described having access to a king. And you might think like Esther, for example, in that story. And how, you know, you just didn't waltz in there into the king's presence. When he was on the throne, you had to make sure that you got his okay before you came in. And, And, you know, that was part of the tension for 
poor Esther, right? And, and an opportunity for her to show faith in the, the king of kings. Well, Paul is using a word here that was that described having access to a king, but he doesn't call God king. God is king. He doesn't deny that. He calls him something else, father. Why? Because the king is our father. That's the point. So you can think about, you know, probably in most cases, uh, even those tough-as-nails kings, when their two-year-old came running in, they probably melted and, like, hold their arms open. Because... And, and the two-year-old probably didn't have a whole lot of fear. Everybody else is standing back trembling. Can I come forward? And the little two- or three-year-old is like, Daddy, that's us. The king is our father. Paul uses this term, father. It's because we have this close father-child relationship with God. And we are unique as believers. We are unique. We know God as father in the fullest sense. Gentiles originally had no access to God. Jews didn't really have access. They could kind of draw near. It was very limited. You can come closer than Gentiles, but not too close. But when Jesus died, the new covenant began. He effected, he put it into effect, the new covenant, when he died. And at that point, you remember what we read earlier, Jared read to us? That symbol of, don't you dare come into his immediate presence or you'll die. That veil was torn. And what that signified is that the new covenant is now in effect. And as Hebrews tells us, the old covenant, which had prevented access to God, became obsolete. The new covenant provides full access to God for believers. New covenant access to God is far superior to to that which they had under the old covenant. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, if you would. Hebrews chapter 10, and read a few verses. Some of you, your minds may have already gone there as you you hear a lot of these themes. Hebrews 10, I want to read verses 19 to 22. And after showing us the superiority of Jesus as a high priest and in so many other ways, he says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We should come in full confidence to God. John E.D. explains this beautifully. He said, The divine being is not clothed in thunder. No barrier stands between him and us, for all the legal obstacles are removed, so that the soul which feeds on 
feels peace with God can come into his sacred presence without shrinking or tremor. It approaches by Christ. Unlike the old covenant priests, we can approach God with confidence without trembling. There's no veil there now to separate us from God. There are no cherubim with flaming swords there to bar the way to God and his presence. Amazingly, Jew and Gentile have this access together. He says again in verse 18, For through him we both have our access in one spirit. To the Father. And, you know, as, as Jared was reading that account from Mark, and there was that, those soldiers, they were mocking Jesus, remember? And one of the things that they were doing as they mocked him is, is that they were, you know, kneeling and bowing before him. And the first, the thought occurred to me is that, you know, one day they are going to bow before Jesus when he will be on his throne. And what will they think then? But then, the sermon came back and, you know, smacked me good. And I thought, you know, if any of those soldiers that bowed before Jesus mocking him later trusted in Christ, later came to believe in him, even they will be able to come before Jesus in the great day of judgment with full confidence. The way has been opened to them. Even them. And, you know, we have songs that go this way. You know, I, I hear my mocking voice, remember, saying, we're no different. And so just like that soldier, if indeed he was, <clears throat> one of them was later saved, we too, though we have sinned against God, if we believe in Jesus, we have access to God. <clears throat> Jews and Gentiles are unified in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. Remember we talked about in Christ, it has this idea of sphere, that we are in Him. Again, Now here, Paul is, is saying, okay, I want to take that same image of sphere, that you know, being in Christ, that you together, Jew and Gentile, are in the Spirit, this one Spirit. There's not one Spirit for Jews and one Spirit for Gentiles. There's not one door of access for Jews and another door of access for Gentiles because, you know, they don't get along, so we're just going to make two different doors for them. No. God has reconciled them both to God and He has reconciled them together, made them to be at peace together with God. And so they have their access together with God. So that Jew and Gentile are coming in together before God. And that's the church, right? We have Jews and Gentiles together. And we come before God together. We have our access together in the Spirit. Along with that unity, God the Holy Spirit empowers the union of Jews and Gentiles in their access to God. That's what... Um, Harold Honer had written, the Spirit empowers the union of Jews and Gentiles and their access to God. You know, it's not easy for us to stay unified, right? Whether it's Jew, Gentile, or whatever, that's not easy. And yes, we are to work at it, but, you know, the outcome is not really up to us. It's the Holy Spirit who's working in each of us and, and keeping us together. 
and drawing us closer together. John Stott elaborates a little bit more on that idea. He summarized the the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit, the one who gives us this access to our Father. He says, It is the Spirit who regenerates, seals, and indwells His people, who witnesses with our spirits that we are God's children, who helps us in our weaknesses and teaches us to pray, and who unites us as we pray. And what an amazing thing where Jew and Gentile can sit together in a prayer meeting next to each other and pray together to their common Father in heaven. By this work of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned here? Another one of those wonderful passages that remind us That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all involved in it. So we should never doubt our access to God because all three members of the Trinity were involved in seeing to it that we have it. We should never doubt. And I want to ask us a couple of questions. Do you take full advantage of the access that you have? And now that you realize the full access you have, do you take advantage of it? Really? And would you characterize your relationship with God as the sweet fellowship of friends? Ask yourself that. Is that how you'd characterize your relationship with God? My relationship with God... Let me tell you what that's like. It's the sweet fellowship of friends. You should be able to say that. Now, don't feel like, you know, well, it's not perfect, so I can't say No. For God's part, He's saying, that's how I characterize it. That's what we've been talking about. God is saying that, for, for His part, that's how He thinks of our relationship. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's how he thinks of his relationship with you. The sweet fellowship of friends. And if God thinks, considers that to be true, and it is true, then so should we characterize our relationship that way. And so again, in your evangelism, you're talking to someone, or you're ministering to someone who maybe is a believer, but, you know, they're having a rough time of it. And you can say, my relationship with God is the sweet fellowship of friends. Is yours? No. Okay, let's look at what what do you need? Do you need to come to Christ first, the first time, by faith? Or do you need to come to Christ and say, Lord, I didn't realize. Now I know. 